Welcome to the JetRails podcast, supporting you through the airwaves with information about website and e-commerce technology and strategies from design and development to security, marketing, conversion rate optimization, and web hosting. We bring you insights from industry leaders and experts hosted, edited, and published by me, Robert Rand, your friendly neighborhood tech ambassador. Hi, and welcome to an episode of the JetRails podcast. I'm Robert, your host, and today we're going to be talking about ADA compliance and some interesting facets of it as it pertains to websites, things like how your website platform itself is going to impact your ability to be compliant uh, the way that you should be and, and need to be for uh, shoppers and other website visitors that have a variety of different disabilities, impairments, and challenges. And with us today, uh, we have Scott from the, uh, <laughs> well, the, the business is is well named, right, Scott? You know, You've got uh, adasitecompliance.com, so <laughs> I think you've been pretty spot on there. Would you do the honor of introducing yourself? Yeah, absolutely. I'd be happy to, and, and I'll share how I landed uh, in this uh, niche of a business. Uh, I, I owned a business for a lot of years and uh, was sitting at my desk and got served with legal documents. And uh, as I flipped through those, uh, it, it was uh, from a, a plaintiff who is blind and was unable to access my website. And it was the first that I had heard of such a thing. And, and honestly, when I first was reading the docs, my initial thoughts were, how does someone who's blind access my website? How's that even possible? And uh, first thing I did was Googled uh, website accessibility. And what came up was uh, a, a lawsuit against Target that they settled for $6 million. And I went, oh, no, I have a, a real issue here. And uh, started to dig into that, uh, hired an attorney, and uh, and started to understand the process of how uh, those with disabilities using assistive devices could access websites. And I was really intrigued by it. I started to put a lot of time and energy into it, just because I, I thought it was such a, an amazing thing. And and of course, why should everyone not have access to websites? Why should it not improve the quality of life for those who uh, maybe it's it's a little more difficult to to leave their homes and such? Uh, and I also realized that in that business, uh, it was a, a food delivery service similar to a DoorDash or Uber Eats, um, that there was a business opportunity. If I made my website accessible to those that had difficulties leaving their homes and accessing goods and services, uh, that they'd be more likely to order through us. Um, so that's how I landed in the space. Uh, I was fortunate to sell that business. Uh, uh, so that, that letter I received about six years ago. Uh, a few years after that, I sold that business and uh, continued to, to educate myself around digital accessibility and uh, started this business uh, about three and a half years ago. Wow. I, I think that's, I mean, firstly, you know, the fact that a challenge led you <laughs> into a business opportunity is, is interesting onto itself. But that's a particularly unique niche because you'd like to think that for a lot of those shoppers in the first place, that going I, you know, in, in any normal situation, going to a mall, going to certain places, probably, you know, more difficult uh, to go in person versus ordering online or through some kind of a digital medium and dealing with, with some form of delivery or, or shipping or what have you. Um, so it's it's probably <laughs> a community that is particularly um, vocal about you know, what they really need and, to make this work, because it, it's probably tremendous. Uh, in, in terms of how it impacts their quality of life. Yeah, and, and you know, fortunately uh, for my business, 
uh, obviously, people ordering goods and services online, right? The numbers, the charts are, are pointed straight up. Um, so uh, it's become more and more important for everybody in society um, to be able to have things delivered directly to them. It's the immediate gratification. It's, it's out of need. Uh, and so we're able to, to help them get those services. So not only do we help them improve websites and, and digital content for those with disabilities, but in general, um, what we do for clients helps with things such as search engine optimization and uh, better flows of, of their websites so that users uh, can more easily access their content. Excellent. You know, when you and I were, were chatting recently, you know, and I know, you know, we're local. We have some some great folks in common, including my brother, <laughs> who's, you know, who's done business with you for some time. At the top of my mind, you know, there, there's recently been an uproar about some automated systems that are meant to help websites with, with some of the compliance and, and helping these, these shoppers to more easily uh, be able to navigate these websites. And, and some of these automated systems have really been falling short and getting a lot of flack uh, in the news about it and, and from different groups in the disability space. And, you know, so that really got me thinking a lot about what kinds of issues can website apps and, and software add-ons solve versus what can't they? <laughs> and, you know, because uh, automation is great, right? You know, it's nice to say, oh, you know, I got a widget, I got a plug-in, I got an app or an extension or module or something. But, so if we could spend a couple of minutes there, what can software solve when it comes to some of these uh, compliance challenges and, and some of these navigation challenges? Sure. And, and for simplicity, let's put percentages to it. And these are obvious estimates. And, uh, you know, so looking at our own technology and we have great technology. So we have a widget that uh, goes usually in the bottom left hand corner of a website. If a user clicks on it, has, you know, great functionality to make fonts bigger or smaller, to change color contrast, to full color, black and white, grayscale, and other additional functionality. Um, but something like that, although it, it looks awesome, right, to, to somebody that, that doesn't have the knowledge to really understand how all this works, they'd say, wow, it's a really cool tool. And that's, that's amazing that, that a business or governmental entity has added that to their website. Uh, in reality, that gets you about 5% of the way there. Um, and then there's technological auditing. So we have software that will scan a website. Uh, that gets you about 30% of the way there. So combine those items with some other, you know, relatively easy things to implement on a website, like an accessibility policy, maybe you get 35 to 40% of the way there. And trust me, if we could push our technology further, we certainly would. We work on it consistently. Um, and we hope one day that technology does solve this issue, but currently it just simply can't. Um, so those businesses that are claiming that add this line of code and poof, your website is magically accessible, they're not being honest and, and they know better um, and, and they're well-educated around it. However, they continue to, to drive that marketing engine around it's simple, add this line of code, it's inexpensive, and very quickly your website will be accessible. Um, so I'll give you an example of where you need human ingenuity. Um, all pictures need a tag. So any picture that's on a website needs a tag. Uh, how can how can a, a software program know exactly what's in a picture? And more importantly, and, and there's a, a distinction between 
what's integral to the website versus what's decorative, just there to make the website look pretty. Um, and those need different tags on them. The ones that look pretty need a tag where someone who's blind using screen reader software, software that'll read the website to them, that picture should just be ignored by that screen reader because it's only there just to look nice. So why waste somebody's time describing that picture to them? So how can software possibly know the difference between those two things? And how, it, and how can software add a proper tag um, to any pictures? And, and software is getting better. And it's why I say, you know, in the future, will software continue to improve? Absolutely, it will. Because right now, there's, there's recognition software that can tell you what's in a photograph. Uh, is it perfect? Absolutely not. I mean, we, we see some horrific uh, explanations provided by software. They're, they're laughable, you know, what they come up with. Um, but there, there's a real simple example of, of why uh, software just simply can't get the job done. Yeah, I know that there's software that can write songs and lyrics and things, but I, I think we're going to still leave a lot, of that, a lot of that up to the professionals. I don't think that uh, the software is going to be writing any New York Times bestsellers just yet. So uh, <laughs> I think we're on the same wave, wavelength when it comes to that. You know, and I, I mentioned something at, at the start of the episode, you know, when it comes to the actual software platform that a website is built on how integral is that to the process does it make a big difference is there a big impact uh, when it comes to when it comes time to really think about site compliance uh, when it comes to you know people with disabilities and things uh, is that going to limit what software you can use or what physical manual changes you can make to better service those communities yeah that, that, that's a great question um and the answer is absolutely. Uh, you can only fix what you have access to. So if you're using a platform that locks down the code, that you can't access the code, you can't fix it. Uh, so a platform like WordPress that gives you full access to the code, then a company like ours can come in and, and audit that website. And then either we can remediate the code or we can provide the reporting back to the, the the client and assist with remediating the code if their internal team or external team is going to do the remediation. Um, another example, so WordPress is super popular. And every time a client comes to us and we see that they're on the WordPress platform or using a theme from WordPress, we are very happy about that because we know we can actually fully help them. Uh, another example is Shopify. There's been a lot of litigation against businesses using Shopify. Um, there's Shopify Plus which is a more expensive version of, of Shopify. And Shopify Plus gives you much greater access to the code. The, the other version that, of course, is less expensive gives you limited access to the code. So when clients come to us, they've received litigation or they're proactively coming. Um, and we that's the first question that we ask. If they're Shopify clients, are you plus or, or not? Um, if they're plus, we can get really far down the path from accessibility and usability standpoint. If they are not, very limited on, on what we can do for them. That's really interesting. So platform by platform. So if you're open source, something like WordPress, Magento, you're going to be in, in really good shape. If you're software as a service, if you're SaaS, it's really going to come down to what you're given access to. And that may change over time as well. Yeah, so, absolutely. And that should be part of the decision-making process for anybody that's building a new website. Um Accessibility is a thing. It's not going away. Litigation is ramping rapidly. Um, so obviously, 
you know, there, there's two sides of it, right? You, you don't want to be sued or receive a demand letter. Nobody wants to go through that. And also, you want to make sure that your website is usable and, and accessible by everyone. Um, why, why would you not want that? And if you can provide that uh, and, and you can find a platform that gives you the ability to do that, why not make that your starting point? Yeah. And I imagine that if you have a choice, <laughs> the website owner, e-commerce merchant, what have you, they're going to be thinking about this before they build the site or before they create, you know, or, or finalize uh, their design files for their new templates, their new theme. Um, you know, aside from filling in the blanks on things like alt tags for images, that they get some stuff right when it comes to colors and fonts and contrast and uh, things that are going to make it easier for various people and systems to uh, interact with. Yeah, absolutely. If they can build accessibility into the website, uh, it, it becomes a lot less expensive and, of course, a lot less time consuming. Uh, to to do it, uh, if you if your approach is let's launch the website and then worry about accessibility, a you have liability in doing that, um, and b it, it's certainly going to be more expensive and take a lot more time to go through the process in, in that way. Yeah, and you mentioned percentages earlier, which I always like to <laughs> on technology think of things in concrete terms whenever possible. But first and foremost, thinking of it from a, a human standpoint. Does uh, being, I don't know, 20 or 40 or 60% of the way there toward really being compliant and accessible, uh, is that valuable? Do you have to get 100% of the way there? Just first and foremost, thinking about it from a a human standpoint, or is it possible that being halfway there is really going to enable a shopper or or a website visitor enough um, to make at least some impact or at least, you know, help maybe, you know, half the users that would otherwise be impacted. D- do you have a way of thinking about that? You know, because I know that sometimes for for website owners, it can be hard to, you know, it's like, okay, well, we'll get, we'll fix the the issues that adding some widgets can help, you know, quick, down and dirty, fast, easy, uh, painless, but then... It's going to take them maybe months to get to dealing with all of their alt tags and all of something else that, you know, or to remediate code issues that, uh, you know, their developers are dealing with security issues and other upgrades and other things that are going to take longer. Something's better than nothing. Um, and, and often it becomes a budgetary thing uh, to, to take an existing larger website and, and have it audited and then remediated. There's an expense to it. Uh, and, and not everybody has the budget to do that. So even if it is just adding a, wedge, a widget to the website, even if it gets you 5% of the way there, um, someone who's colorblind, being able to open up that widget and make the website grayscale or black and white, that helps them, right? Being colorblind is a disability. Um, that allows them to then access that website or, or have a better experience u- utilizing that website. So, um, it, of course, we want to encourage everybody to push it as far as they possibly can, you know, go the full way, get it fixed. Um, there's not really a such thing as a hundred percent, but can you get it to 90, 95%? Absolutely. You can. Um, but find a starting point. If it's a widget and just using technology so that you're getting 35 to 40% of the way there, it's great. You're still helping a lot of people by doing that. You're making great improvements to your, your website and to the user experience. 
Uh, and, and I'm going to add the caveat, as long as it's one of the widgets that works, <laughs> you know, just spending X dollars a month on a problem, if, it, if it's not one of the systems that, that really is living up to its uh, its mission, that's another story. But I'm going to flip the question a little bit because then there's the side that you talked about that got you in the industry. There's the litigation side of this where there are demand letters and lawsuits and other things. and now, you know, being part of the way there may be, you know, helpful, at least on some level to consumers, uh, what happens on, on that other side can be, can you be halfway there? Can you be 50% of the way there? And, you know, is that going to cut down on your chances of litigation? Or let's say that, you know, you had previous issues, is, is that going to protect you against getting, you know, more lawyers coming after you? Or, do you have a thought process for how folks need to be thinking about it in terms of uh, protecting their business in the long haul, not just as a one-time issue? Because I, I do imagine as well that these things, uh, just like site speed and security and uh, and scalability and all these other things, that it changes over time as their websites evolve. So. Sure. You know, I, I can imagine that as they update their site, as they add new pages and products and things that they may need to add more alt tags or refresh certain things. So what is the what's the thinking on staying compliant overall? So let, let's let's talk about, you know, if we can try and get into the plaintiff's attorney's heads um, and most of our business comes on referrals from defense counsel. We only do defense work for our, our business. We don't do anything on the plaintiff's side. Um, but if somebody receives litigation, they have to hire defense counsel to defend them. And defense counsel then refers them to us to fix their problem. Um, so we, we have the inside scoop on, on how the, you know, the game is played. Um, so plaintiff's attorneys, it's an easy game for them. 99.9% .9 of websites are not accessible. Um, it's, it's that simple. And again, if you want to put a percentage to it, I would say that 90 plus percent aren't even thinking about accessibility. So it's easy for a plaintiff or plaintiff's attorney to land on a website and within 90 seconds find multiple items on that website that simply make it unusable by those with assistive devices. Um, so don't, don't allow yourself to be an easy target. Again, if you can't go the full way of getting it fixed, um, fully remediating your website, at least make sure that you're not low-hanging fruit, right? That the plaintiff or plaintiff's attorney can't land on your website and go, yeah, they're not doing anything. You know, they don't have an accessibility policy and, and these five to 10 items that are really easy for us to look at, um, that they're simply not accessible. They haven't even thought about them. Uh, the flip side of that, of course, is, you know, if budget and time is limited, Let's, let's then only concentrate on the things that make the site most usable and also those items that the plaintiffs and plaintiffs' attorneys are targeting most often, what we're seeing named in lawsuits and in demand letters. Um, so that, that's always how we go through our process um, is that you know we're, we certainly encourage everybody to go fully through it, um, but we understand the reality that not every business and governmental entity has, has the funds to, to be able to do it that way. Um, or to immediately start going through the, the entire process. So it's a matter of how do we find the right items to, to, to target? And fortunately, 
a lot of the items, as I mentioned, that the plaintiffs and plaintiffs' attorneys are targeting are the same items that do legitimately make a website much more usable. And, you know, as, as a real simplistic analogy, right, you, you could have the nicest car in the world. You could have a Ferrari. But if you don't have the key to get into that Ferrari, it's useless. It looks pretty, but you can never do anything with it. It just sits there. If, if your website, it may look great, but it could be missing one item that, that a screen reader needs to be able to access that website. And that website is completely and utterly useless to somebody that needs a screen reader, someone who's blind utilizing screen reader software. Interesting. <laughs> well, I don't know. As soon as I start getting in the mind of, uh, of plaintiff's lawyers, usually I'm going to need a shower after this. But uh, <laughs> yeah, just a little dirty. After <laughs> I'm very glad every morning I wake up and I'm not an attorney. Um, the... You know, it's particularly interesting in, in, in some ways that uh, that this is sort of, you know, how websites are looked at that I can imagine that uh, that there are folks out there that are scanning websites. They're using some automated systems to identify what is and what isn't in some ways just to speed up process looking for sites to uh, engage with in lawsuits and other things, looking for settlements and um you know, it's not all that different in a lot of ways from, you know, how hackers crawl sites looking for sites that have security holes. They're looking for vulnerability. Um, not to compare the two. Again, I think that there are some some really legitimate gripes about uh, sites not being accessible when they're supposed to be. And that's uh, not trying to kick up money myself. But um, but I think just in the process itself, that automation <laughs> seems to come uh, to the forefront in a lot of these situations, if not on day one, certainly over time, you know, for for uh, lawyers, this is a business. Um, and I imagine that uh, if anything that I've ever seen when it comes to these sorts of lawsuits is accurate, um, they're probably not one offs. <laughs> so that means that, you know, they are looking for who else to approach. And sometimes that's how you affect change in a positive way. But that's uh, also how how you go after material gains. So yeah, and, and and it's great that you mentioned that, right? That well, we can argue all day whether the plaintiffs' attorneys are are doing this for the greater good of society or they're doing it to to, to make a living. Um, you know, we can we can guess at that. Uh, the good thing is is that it is driving positive change. Uh, when I started, you know, looking into this as a possible you know career move for myself. Uh, and I went to a lot of websites to see, you know, how are they from an accessibility standpoint? And the first thing that I would do and that I still do is I scroll to the footer of websites to see if they have an accessibility policy. Because if they don't, that's a, a pretty glaring sign that they're not doing anything to make their website more accessible and usable. Um, and I would say five years ago, maybe 5% of websites had an accessibility policy. Today, if I if I had a guess, I would say probably about a third. And of the larger businesses, uh, governmental entities, and so on, I would probably put that number at about eighty uh, percent. So the the litigation is driving positive change. Nobody, including myself, when I received my demand letter, you know, wants to be involved in litigation. It's it's stressful and it's expensive, um, but it does drive positive change and and. It's hard to, to, for people to take action unless there's a reason to take action. 
Yeah. And this well, is creating that reason either because they receive litigation or they don't want to receive litigation. So proactively, they're they're engaging and, and fixing things. That's right. And there's uh, there's a lot to juggle. You know, you're trying to keep your website fast. You're trying to keep it secure. You're trying to make sure that it's reliable for sh- folks. It, th- there's a lot of competing demands that uh, are on these businesses in terms of where they invest in content and marketing and maintenance and development and everything else. So I, I, I can certainly appreciate it. I don't mean to make too light of it, but a little bit. Um, I, I suppose it's a heavier topic, so I'm prone to uh, trying to see the lighter side. But, you know, now I'm thinking about folks looking at the websites itself and, you know, there are the basic file structures, HTML, other things that uh, that website readers and users are interacting with. Are there other types of content? Like I, when I think e-commerce sites, I think about, you know, manufacturers that have sell sheets listed as PDFs and, you know, warranties and all sorts of things, you know, as file attachments, things like that. Is there a process for getting into the weeds with some of the additional content that's being presented or it, is the main focus typically about the web page, the, the main web pages themselves, the HTML, that, that sort of a, a layer? Websites are definitely at the forefront, and most of the lawsuits that we see are for websites not being accessible. Um, however, there, there's a lot of litigation uh, against governmental entities for their documents not being accessible. Uh, documents for governmental entities. Uh, they have certain lengths of time by law that they have to maintain documents. That could be forever or that could be 30 or 60 days. Um, but in any case, uh, people, and just speaking only about governmental entities and documents, uh, people can, can make records requests. And so that governmental entity has to provide the document to anybody making a records request. And those documents have to be made accessible. So plaintiffs and plaintiffs' attorneys have you know, caught on to, to that. And they've gone after a lot of, of governments uh, for their documents not being accessible. The, the process to make a document accessible is much easier than making a website accessible. Uh, there's no remediation per se of a document. Uh, the, the teams of, of auditors would actually also be remediators. They would just go in and fix. So, uh, you know, the simple process would be to provide the documents and then to make them accessible and then provide them back to the, the client um, as an accessible doc. And if those are on the website, then they just swap them out. So a, a good example would be a restaurant. Lots of restaurants have PDF versions of their menu on their websites. Um, those have to be made accessible. And, and I'll give you an example of an inaccessible document or what would make a, a document inaccessible. Uh, there's what's called headers. And that's what a screen reader user would follow is the headers of the document. It's basically the title of that section. And it's they, they label them as with an H, H1, H2, H3, H4. Um, if those are not in proper order, then the screen reader is going to bounce around. Um, so maybe it, it for a menu, maybe they have H1 labeled properly as appetizers, but their H2 was at the bottom as desserts. Right. So it doesn't flow. It doesn't make any sense. It, and, and, you know, that's an overly simplistic. I, I, personally, I want to start the meal with dessert. But hey, you know, who's <laughs> <just> counting? <laughs> yeah. Um, and then in addition uh, to documents and, you know, usually what are PDFs, 
videos uh, have to be closed captioned and there has to be audio description. So, you know, most, of course, have seen closed captioning on, on TV shows. Um, and, and we're seeing much better progress with closed captioning uh, on things like YouTube. The technology actually does a pretty darn good job of captioning items at this point. Uh, so the price points are pretty, uh, pretty low. But if you're going to produce a video, make sure that that's captioned, that there's audio descriptions and then also apps. Um, so, you know, a lot of apps are what's known as native. Um, they're, they're actually a standalone. They're not part of the website as opposed to a responsive app that is actually one and the same with the website, although there can be differences between the two. Um, and each would have to be audited and remediated. If it's native, then certainly, you know, individually, the website and the app both have to be audited. Interesting. So let's say you're on WooCommerce or Magento and you install an extension for reward points. And that's now going to have different content on the site where you're going to be learning about, you know, earning points with this product purchase. And, you know, on the checkout, you know, spending your points, uh, you know, toward uh, your new purchase, that sort of thing. But if if that's all coming from a third-party app and it's uh, it's not something that you control the code for, you know, so if you're using, let's say, Shopify and a bunch of Shopify apps in that way, uh, you may lose a lot more control of some of those elements. Um, yes, you absolutely nailed it. Most plugins at this point are not accessible. And, and even if they're telling you that they are, we, we find very few that are. Um, we've actually... We, we wanted to have... Uh, chatbot on our own website. And for probably two years, we tried to find an accessible chatbot. Plenty of them said that they were accessible, but we're experts at it. We know that they're not accessible, even if they're telling us that they are. Um, so we didn't have a chatbot because, of course, we're not going to use one unless it's fully accessible. Um, one of the benefits for us of COVID um, was that you know we, we had a lot of extra hours on our hands that first 90 uh, days or so. And so we built an accessible chatbot. So now we have one. Uh, we don't market it, so we don't sell it to anybody else, but now we have one. Um, so be very, very cautious with those telling you that their items are accessible. Uh, we're actually starting to see a big uptick in those that are receiving litigation going back after companies that they're that have told them that their items are accessible, um, especially uh, website developers, designers, digital agencies, that actually put into contracts that, yes, we're going to make your website accessible and usable and, and adhere to the Americans with Disabilities Act. And it just doesn't happen. They don't have the knowledge base and expertise to make it happen. And then if that business that purchased that website through that, that provider receives litigation, what do they do? Of course, they go right back after that provider. And, and we've had uh, just, just over the last 10 days, we've had four different defense counsels, people that normally would refer business into us, contact us saying, our client is going back after the developer and can they engage you to show, you know, that, that the website wasn't accessible. So it's that that's a that's a new thing. Wow. <laughs> it's a crazy world out there. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, you know, if you're going to make claims, you should, uh, <laughs> you should definitely be ready to live up to them. Um, now, You've been in this space for years. You mentioned that you know your your first foray into this was about six years ago. You know, receiving letters and uh, making your business itself, uh, your food service business, more compliant. Have you collected any data on how much of a sales lift 
becoming ADA compliant can lead to. I know that that's not typically the number one reason for doing it, but it's it's pretty. Uh, I, I think it's pretty easy to imagine that as you're able to service more customers and make them happy, uh, that you're opening yourself up to more revenue. Yes. Uh, so for my food delivery service, we estimated a five percent bump in sales um, because we we were proud of what we were doing and we marketed it on that. You know, we reached out to different associations to tell them what we do, um, and of course, people naturally want to share. Um, so if you're somebody with a disability and you're in different chat groups, you, you want to share that you found somebody who is doing things right and, and is helping you in your life. Um, so that, that was our business. Now, of course, we have clients that come to us and we can never rationalize that they're going to see an increase in sales because of what we're doing with their website. Um, you know, maybe they don't sell direct to consumer. Um, they have a, a customer facing website, but they don't sell direct to consumer. So, it's hard to say, okay, well, your sales are going to increase because your website's now accessible. Um, and I'll give you a, a, an interesting vertical. And what we see with plaintiff's attorneys often is that they go after a vertical. We can never figure out why, uh, but we'll see a particular vertical receive 50, 70, 100 lawsuits all at once. Uh, we can only assume that they go after uh, the same vertical all at once because they can essentially use the same documents, just you know, swap out names and a little bit of information. So. You know, it's much easier for, for the plaintiff's attorneys to do it that way. So um, I wasn't very far off in how I thought this operated. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a pretty well-oiled machine on the plaintiff's attorney side. I, I feel uh, vindicated from my earlier statements. That's great. Right. Well, not great, but you know, <laughs> it, is what it, it, is. It, it is what it is. Um, so the, uh, the car dealership vertical uh, got hit uh, with a tremendous amount of litigation. And as... Uh, owners of mostly dealership groups were being referred in and we were having conversa conversations with them. There was certainly some frustration on their end. Uh, and we heard it many times that, you know, the plaintiff is blind and they can't drive. They're not coming in to buy a car. And then we would correct them and say, no, not true. Yes, they can't drive. Absolutely. That's a fact. If someone who's, who's blind can't drive. Um, however, how can you say that someone who's blind can't be buying a car for a spouse, for a child, for a grandchild, whomever it is? How do you know that that you know that there's not a person that lives down the street who's blind, who's a multi-billionaire and has all the money in the world to buy vehicles, and they've decided to buy vehicles for every employee of, of a business that they own, and they're coming in, they're they're going to your website to buy 500 cars, and you just lost that business. You essentially just handed that business to one of your competitors that has taken the time and put the energy into making their website accessible and usable. Um, so, you know, th there's, there's all of these different circumstances and we can't just assume that certain people because of disabilities can't do certain things, right? That's, that's unfair. That's, that, you, that, that's goes so against how our thought processes should work. We should be thinking about all of the ways that they can do things, not all of the ways that, that they can't do things. That's fair. And look, I, I grew up on comic books and there's no shortage of folks like Daredevil. <laughs> you know, you got to watch out for people with disabilities. They surprise you. Uh, you know, uh, I, I've 
you've seen, you know, Special Olympics and the things that, that you think people can't do or won't do uh, will always come back at you because I think that that drive to uh, to be able to participate fully is really, really strong um, and not going away. And I, I think that, that you're right, that it's not always uh, it's not always a straight path (laughs) that it's the same way that we talk a lot about conversion rate optimization and uh, attribution of sales that you can't simply look at the last click that generated the sale so let's say that you know retargeting ad that brought someone back to the store well you know they'd been coming to your website for weeks prior to that they'd engaged with you through I don't know, you know, through Google ads, through social media, through other things that it took multiple touch points before they were ready to to make that purchase. There's research involved. There's uh, th- there's more than just an immediate click and buy now. And so I, I think that that all plays in together, that there are other people that you rely on for feedback, especially in bigger purchases like a, a vehicle. Um, that are going to give feedback within the family or friends or what have you that, uh, you know, that, that's a purchase that a lot of people don't make completely on their own. Uh, you know, so it's not always about the driver. <laughs> like you say, you know, uh, you know, you, your kid got their license, uh, you know, you're going to be very vested in, in what they're going to be driving. So big picture kind of stuff that uh, sometimes it's hard to fully anticipate what the full impact is going to be until uh, until you really try something out. Um, and I, I think we've really covered a lot of the questions that I had for you this morning, um, the things that, that I, I was thinking about uh, in advance of, of this taping. Scott, is there anything we didn't cover that you think is, is really valuable? Any words of wisdom, prognostication, (laughs) any, any other, uh, final thoughts before we wrap up? Yeah, I, I, I would say that, uh, you know, this is important to do from a lot of different aspects and, and a lot of our clients come to us because they don't want to be sued or they've been sued. It's around litigation. Um, but it's always important to remember that it's also about doing what is morally and ethically right. It's about inclusivity. And, and it's such an important piece of, of this. And, you know, doing what I do for a living, uh, traveling a lot to conferences for those with disabilities, um, interacting with a lot of people who are disabled. Uh, you know, maybe my level of awareness is higher than most would be. Um, but this is truly an important thing and life changing for everybody. And, and I personally, I look forward to, to the day and, and I only half jokingly say it that, when my business is out of business because all websites and all digital content is built with accessibility at the forefront. Um, and that will happen. It's going to take time, but we're, there, there will be a time when, when just a website will simply be accessible. The, the theme of the website's accessible and all the content's made accessible and that, uh, that, that people have the knowledge uh, how, to, how to make that happen. Uh, and I look forward to that. that that'll be a great day. Awesome. Well, and I'll admit to the audience that I uh, I sat on the board of a school, um, a nonprofit for kids with special needs for several years. Um, I was president of the board, and you know we helped children with challenges like cerebral palsy. You know, kids that were wheelchair bound, kids that 
uh, were amazing. <laughs> and, um, you know, when like most things in life, when you put a face to something, when you go out there and you you really re- understand what some of the challenges are that the people face in their lives and how we can all um, work together to service a larger community, I think it's a beautiful thing. Um, so I'm Scott. I'm really glad that you joined today. Uh, I think that this was very insightful for, for our audience and. Uh, To that audience, as always, thanks for tuning in. We'll have more great content for you soon. In the meantime, stay safe, stay healthy, and happy selling out there. Thanks for listening to the JetRails podcast. You can subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. We also post full videos of most episodes on the JetRails YouTube and Facebook channels. You can find links at jetrails.com forward slash podcast. Have questions about an episode? Is there a topic you'd like us to cover in the future? We're at JetRails on LinkedIn and Twitter. Do you want to sponsor this podcast? Sorry, but we're committed to ad-free listening. We are, however, always looking for guests that our listeners will benefit from. And don't forget to like the podcast on whatever platform you're tuning in from. It's a small ask, but it's a big help. We appreciate it, and more importantly, we appreciate you.